From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm your host, NP Education Specialist, Michelle McKay, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AAMP's official podcast, bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on the issues that matter to NPs and our patients. Today, we are joined by nurse practitioners Kimberly Kearns and Christina Hansen for an engaging conversation about irritable bowel syndrome, also known as IBS. IBS is the most common GI condition worldwide and affects about 1 in 20 people in the United States. Although each person has a unique IBS experience within the range of the known symptoms, this condition can significantly decrease a person's quality of life. In fact, the impact is so substantial that most patients with IBS said they would give up 10 to 15 years of life expectancy for an instant cure. Therefore, the provider-patient relationship and continuity of care are critical to the management of all patients with IBS. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome our experts, Kim and Christina. What an honor it is to take part in a second podcast to discuss irritable bowel syndrome. As mentioned, my name is Kimberly Kearns. I'm an adult nurse practitioner with a specialty in gastroenterology. I have spent the last 15 years in gastroenterology. I currently work for Julie Health and Care, a multi-specialty practice in the western suburbs of Chicago. I'd like to take a moment now to introduce our other esteemed faculty for today, Christina Hansen. Thanks, Kim. So as Kim said, I'm Christina Hansen, family nurse practitioner, and I've been working at South Denver GI in Colorado for over 16 years in general GI and hepatology. I'm a sub-investigator in our research department and one of the Board of Trustees for GAP, which is an educational organization for advanced practice providers in GI and hepatology. It is my pleasure to work with you, Kim, on this educational endeavor, and I appreciate the invitation to do so. So within this podcast, we'll be referring to the American Gastrointestinal Association, or AGA, and American College of Gastroenterology, ACG, guidelines for the management of irritable bowel syndrome. Let's take a few moments to introduce these guidelines and mention some of the key differences between development. We'll start with the AGA guidelines. In 2014, the AGA published a technical review on irritable bowel syndrome. Much has changed since this time, and the purpose of the newer guidelines that were published in 2022 is to provide updated evidence-based recommendations on the management of irritable bowel syndrome. The target audience of these guidelines includes primary care and gastroenterology healthcare professionals, along with patients and policymakers. There are two clinical guidelines, one regarding the pharmacological management of irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, and the second refers to pharmacological management of IBS with diarrhea. There is also an AGA IBS spotlight that provides a one-page summary of the AGA IBS guidelines. Now let's move on to the ACG guidelines. The ACG guidelines were published in 2020. The ACG clinical guideline was developed to provide clinicians with high quality evidence to support essential clinical questions relevant to the diagnosis and management of irritable bowel syndrome. 
The ACG guideline focuses on issues related to diagnosis and, of course, management of IBS. Okay, we've briefly outlined the two guidelines. Let's now pivot and explore some of the key differences between the development of the guidelines. So the goal of the AGA guidelines were to provide an update to the 2014 recommendations based on systemic and comprehensive literature synthesis. And of course, the AGA guidelines were published in 2022. Whereas the goal of the ACG guidelines is to address key diagnostic and therapeutic issues. And to be fair and balanced, it's not a comprehensive review of all IBS subject areas, or else it'd probably be about a 100-page paper. So <laughs> lastly, we'd like to review the key differences between guideline outcomes, right? So the AGA focus is on critical and important outcomes. To help clarify these terms, a critical outcome was noted to be an FDA responder endpoint and or an undesirable outcome, which included adverse events. Important outcomes were related to individual symptoms. So this included specifically like abdominal pain, improvement in stool consistency, and quality of life, just to name a few. Now, ACG recommendations really focused on global IBS symptom improvement, which is something now I think we really focus on and have to recognize as global symptoms of IBS. So we're not just focused on directly abdominal pain, but also we're looking at improvement in stool form, frequency, and even symptoms that go along with IBS. So specifically like abdominal bloating. Now, I know that's not part of the guidelines, but again, we just need to make sure that we're looking at this from two perspectives, right? So ACG focusing on global IBS symptom improvement. All right. I think we've created at least a bit of a foundation regarding the two guidelines that we'll mention throughout today's podcast. So let's dive right in. Let's see how this works in clinical practice. So I'm going to start us off with a patient case. I have a 36-year-old female that was put on my schedule for a chief complaint of abdominal pain with diarrhea. So upon starting my interview with the patient, she reports that she's been having generalized abdominal pain with associated loose stools for what she describes as, quote, several months. Upon talking to her further, it was actually close to a year. She reports four to five loose, mushy, non-bloody stools per day, and at times has associated urgency. She can't really determine any specific food triggers and notes that the symptoms have really been affecting her. She disclosed that she works in sales and recently avoided an outside work event, fearing that she might need to use a bathroom. Eva reported looking for a new job that would primarily have her working from home. So before we move on with this case, Christina, I think we should really make mention about some of the burdens of IBS and really how important it is as a nurse practitioner to make this diagnosis, right? Because it really does affect quality of life. Absolutely, Kim, it does. Certainly irritable bowel syndrome affects people regardless of race, age, or gender, but it is most common in women and younger individuals. Although not a life-threatening condition, irritable bowel syndrome is associated with significant disease burden, including decrease in quality of life, elevated rates of psychological comorbidities, and high economic cost. Patients with IBS report worse health-related quality of life than patients with diabetes or end-stage renal disease. The impact makes this diagnosis rate of absenteeism. What's absenteeism? Well, an average of 13 and a half days of work or school per year loss compared with four or nearly five days for those with, without IBS and presenteeism. So 87% report reduced producti productivity at work in the past week, resulting in nearly 14 hours per week of lost productivity due to IBS. 
Socially, the impact of IBS on daily life can be seen in the negative impact of eating outside the home, going out with friends, traveling, going to new or unfamiliar places. I can tell you how many of my patients uh, talk to me about their their fears, just like you mentioned, Kim. Fear fear of going and and to a family reunion, you know, across the country and having to travel on the plane or in a car. It significantly affects their quality of life. Without a doubt, Christina. All right, let's pivot back here and, and look at the patient presentation. So she didn't exhibit any alarm features, and we're kind of going to dive into that in a bit. In a bit, and but specifically, no intentional weight loss. Reports that her appetite is overall good, and denies any family history of malignancy, inflammatory bowel disease, or celiac disease. Um, reports she occasionally has some mild anxiety, but hasn't formally been di- diagnosed. Otherwise, her medical history is unremarkable. Her only surgical intervention was her that her wisdom teeth were removed at age 22. She denied the use of prescription medications, but had informed me because I asked her about the use of Imodium and multiple probiotics in the past without any significant relief of her overall symptoms. She denied smoking, reports social alcohol use, maybe about two to three drinks per week, denied marijuana use, and specifically no history of illicit drug use. I do a physical exam on her, and it's relatively normal right? Um, She's got no rashes or lesions anywhere. She's got no significant abdominal pain, specifically no rebound or guarding. Um, And at this point, her rectal exam was deferred. So we see this patient in our clinic. Let's think about our differentials and start thinking about making a confident diagnosis of our patient who's clearly struggling, right? So let's begin with discussing, of course, Rome 4 criteria for irritable bowel syndrome. So what is this officially? So Rome 4 criteria is recurrent abdominal pain on an average of one or more day per week in the last three months that's been associated with two or more of the following. So it's related to defecation, change in frequency of stool, and change in stool form or appearance, right? So Christina and I would like to point out that IBS has actually been redefined as a disorder of gut-brain interaction. Christina, can you talk about this a bit further for our audience? Yeah, I think it's an important point to clarify. So it's well established that one of the pathways involving IBS is this disconnect between the brain and gut, what we know as the brain-gut axis. So how do we go about explaining this to our patients with irritable bowel syndrome? Well, there's a really great article that was published in Gastroenterology by Kiefer called Explaining Brain-Gut Access to Patients. And I think this is a useful article to reference when we're having conversations with our patients around this subject. I explained to my patient that the brain and gut are in constant communication using nerves and chemical signals. The gut sends frequent messages to the brain about its condition, how maybe it has fullness from a meal, the need to have a bowel movement, and the brain usually dampens these signals to minimize discomfort, tune gut functioning based on internal and external stimuli. Normal brain-gut communication, though, can sometimes go wrong with prolonged disturbances, such as stress, inadequate sleep, infection, and so on. The brain may perceive gut sensations more strongly than usual and may send inappropriate signals to the gut that disturb intestinal functioning. So as Kim mentioned, there are new criteria published in 2021 by the Rome Foundation Clinical Diagnostic Criteria for Disorders of the Gut-Brain Axis, which essentially says If the patient's symptoms are bothersome, such as require attention or interfere with their daily activities or cause worry, diagnosis can be made based on a lower frequency of symptoms and shorter duration, eight weeks or more, provided there is clinical confidence that other diagnoses have been sufficiently ruled out 
based on presentation and additional investigation if and as needed. Thank you, Christina, for that great overview. I think it's just so important to recognize that, you know, this this specific brain-gut correlation, because I think it actually, everything works together, especially when we talk about our treatment options that we'll get to soon enough. So we mentioned in Rome criteria that we need to help classify our patients with IBS into specific subtypes based on predominant bowel habits. This subtyping actually helps focus treatment on the predominant and often most bothersome symptom. Just as a review, IBS is actually classified into four subtypes. So we have IBS with constipation predominance, or IBS-C, IBS with diarrhea predominance, IBS-D, IBS mixed bowel habits, or IBS-M, or there's the unsubtyped. Now, how do we actually help define these subtypes? Well, we use the Bristol Stool Form Scale kind of helps provide us guidance in classifying our IBS subtypes. So types one and two are more representative that of constipation subtypes, whereas types six and seven are more consistent with diarrhea. So for a diagnosis of IBSD, as we're moving more towards our patient case that we were discussing, a patient would need to describe 25% or more of her stools in a type six to seven, according to the Bristol Stool Form Scale. And as you can guess, right, if we're going to use an IBS-C subtype, then patients would need to describe 25% or more of their stools as a type 1 or 2 in the Bristol stool form scale. So let's continue our process of making a diagnosis. One of the things that I think I believe Christina and I find most important is the overall shift in the process regarding IBS diagnosis. IBS should no longer be considered a diagnosis of exclusion, but rather a positive diagnosis can be based off of medical history, physical exam, evaluation for any alarm features, which as I said, we're going to go over. So this would be new symptoms with an onset over the age of 50, rectal bleeding not attributed to hemorrhoids or fissure, unintentional weight loss, anemia, nocturnal diarrhea, which means waking up in the middle of the night in order to have a bowel movement, and family history of colon cancer, inflammatory bowel disease, or celiac disease. Along with, of course, making sure that there are no evidence of alarm features, we also recognize a positive diagnostic strategy includes limited diagnostic testing, which we're going to review in a moment, with the use of symptom-based Rome 4 criteria that we just discussed. So this strategy is now what we recognize as a positive diagnosis strategy of IBS, Again, not using this diagnosis of exclusion, doing multiple tests, ruling out many other things, right? We use this positive diagnostic strategy. So for all of us listening, right, I'd like you to provide you with some confidence in making this diagnosis of IBS. You're thinking, Kim, don't test. I'm telling you, don't test, right? There's data around the validation of Rome 4 criteria with upwards of 97% specificity for a positive diagnosis of IBS with clinical application. So we really can feel quite confident in IBS as a primary diagnosis, and again, not a diagnosis of exclusion when we use these criteria that we're talking about. So we've mentioned limited diagnostic testing. So let's talk a bit further and review some of both the ACG and AGA specific guidelines regarding diagnostic testing for IBS. First and foremost, for all IBS populations, both societies agree the use of a positive diagnostic strategy rather than diagnosis of exclusion. And of course, that's why we're spending so much time reviewing this positive diagnostic strategy. So 
we're thinking that we've got, you know, we're working on our differentials and we're thinking we have a patient with IBS. So no matter what the subtype of IBS, for all patients, I always ensure that I start by evaluating specifically a CBC, a complete metabolic profile, and of course a TSH, right? This helps me kind of work through some of my differentials and eliminate some of those alarm features that I had already discussed with you. Next, it's important to recommend and complete age-appropriate colorectal cancer screening, and this of course is for anyone over the age of 45. Now, let's break down our limited diagnostic testing according to subtype. I'm going to start with IBS diarrhea predominance. So both the AGA and ACG recommend checking what's called a fecal calprotectin for our patients with IBS-D. This helps us eliminate any kind of inflammatory process that could be arising, of course, if somebody has an elevated fecal calprotectin. They also look for CRP in both AGA and ACG guidelines, again, to help us rule out an inflammatory process. Both AGA and ACG guidelines suggest celiac screening. I recommend just a, a standard IGA TTG. And if available and when bile acid diarrhea is suspected, the AGA recommends checking for fecal bile acids. I can tell you that I don't do this very often because this test is very, very difficult to obtain. And last but not least, the AGA provides a recommendation for stool testing for Giardia if it happens to be endemic. Now, Christina, we also have some IBS-C recommendations, right? So how about IBS-C specifically testing? So again, um, I believe that patients, of course, sometimes with IBS-C present with abdominal bloating. So I would recommend, again, uh, celiac screening. And again, the ACG specific guidelines talk about this with uh, just IBS-D patients. So again, um, I always check celiac screening for my IBS-C patients, especially if they present with bloating. And again, if there's any severe or refractory symptoms, patients may need GI evaluation for physiologic testing, such as anal rectal physiology testing, um, specifically evaluation for pelvic floor dysfunction and or refractory constipation, which is actually a recommendation from both the AGA and ACG. So now I'm sure you're thinking, Kim, you gave us four subtypes for IBS. What about this mixed patient or undefined patient? Okay, so here's some recommendations for testing for you here. Check a fecal calprotectin, check a CRP, and again, do that celiac screening. A lot of times, I'll be honest with you, there is a, there's a paper that suggests using abdominal radiography, so again, maybe like a KUB, to assess for stool accumulation. Because I'll tell you, a lot of the times our IBS mixed patient is actually a patient that may actually be constipated and having a little bit of overflow diarrhea. So when they're describing this constipation and, you know, loose type stools, uh, I think that sometimes this x-ray kind of helps define us. And then, of course, if they actually have constipation, then we can actually redefine them into their correct subtype. That's fantastic, Kim. Thanks for reviewing the society guidelines recommended diagnostic testing. But I think it's also important to point out the diagnostic testing that's actually not recommended by each of these society guidelines. So there's definitely a limited amount of testing we need to do to be confident in that po positive diagnosis. So both the AGA and ACG recommend against routine stool testing, uh, with the exception of, as you mentioned, Giardia, per the AGA guidelines, if you're in an area where Giardia is endemic. 
Routine colonoscopy in patients under the age of 45 is not recommended without alarm features. And routine food allergy and food sensitivity testing. And we know that our patients love to come in and ask us about food sensitivity testing and if this is pertinent or they're requesting this. There is a caveat, though, to this. Uh, the ACG guidelines state that a provider can consider food allergy or sensitivity testing if there are reproducible symptoms that are actually concerning for food allergy. The AGA has also included in their guidelines that they do not recommend lactulose or glucose hydrogen breath testing. So let's shift gears a bit and return to the patient case. Thanks, Christina. I'm sure you'll recognize that this patient has had a long journey with her symptoms, right? Almost a year's worth of symptoms as she's describing. So reflecting on her medical history, her physical exam, no evidence of alarm features, and a limited diagnostic testing strategy. This is how I kind of pursued her workup, right? And I, I believe that she had more of a diarrhea predominance, right? She was describing stools, I would say probably a type 5 and a type 6, according to the Bristol stool scale. So her routine labs were, were reviewed. She had a normal CBC, a normal CMP, and a normal TSH. So I checked a fecal calprotectin, a CRP, and celiac screening, which all were completely negative. So with this information and using a positive diagnostic strategy, as we've discussed, recognizing the validation of Rome 4 criteria, again, having a 97% specificity, I then moved to the diagnosis of IBSD very confidently. So we've made our diagnosis. So of course, our next step is how do we make our patients better, right, Christina? I know that these patients come in, they're feeling terrible. They want to have improvement in their quality of life, right? Enjoy an outdoor activity, travel, as you mentioned earlier. I like to tell them I want to see them dance the night away and not have to think about their symptoms, right? So let's explore some management of IBSD. There are several therapeutic options for the management of IBSD, and we're going to review both society guidelines when it comes to the management of IBSD. 5-HT3 antagonists, so Alessatron, both the AGA and ACG have provided a conditional recommendation. So you know the FDA guidelines list this therapy as approved for use in women with severe IBSD who have failed conventional therapy. We also have the category of antibiotics, or rifaximin. The ACG provides a strong recommendation, where the AGA provides a conditional recommendation for use. But the AGA also includes conditional recommendation regarding retreatment with rifaximin. Just as a little side note, rifaximin is generally well-tolerated with adverse event profiles similar to that of placebo. So how about opiate receptor modulators? We've got loperamide and eluxatiline. We will start with loperamide, a peripheral mu opiate agonist. The AGA suggests the use of loperamide with a conditional recommendation whereas the ACG provides no recommendation. In a deeper dive of AGA recommendations, there have been randomized controlled trials that evaluate greater adequate global relief response and adequate pain end response, but overall studies are relatively small in size. Subsequently, the AGA provided a low quality of evidence with this conditional recommendation. The AGA considers loperamide a first-line treatment because of low cost, wide availability, and minimal adverse effects. Loperamide can be used as an adjunct to other IBSD therapies. Now let's remember, we talked about the ACG guidelines look at global response, right? So with that being said, again, there's no recommendation specifically from ACG guidelines. How about eluxatiline? 
This is a peripherally acting mu opiate and kappa agonist along with delta opiate antagonist. So both the AGA and ACG recommend use of eloxadiline with conditional recommendations. It is contraindicated in patients without a gallbladder, excessive alcohol use, or a history of sphincter of OD spasm or pancreatitis. But what about bile agents, right? Cholestyramine. So the ACG actually advises against the use of bile acid agents. Interesting. There's data that suggests bile acid agents actually may stimulate the GI tract. There's also no data that these agents have provided any clinical benefits regarding, again, those global IBS symptoms, including that of bloating. The AGA guidelines make no recommendations on the use specifically of bile acid agents. So, Christina, we really do have a lot of tools in our toolbox here, right? I really find that the AGA clinical decision tool can be exceptionally helpful when selecting an appropriate therapy for my IBS patients. And I do believe that the AGA tool will be available via link uh, for everyone um, with this podcast series. Yeah, absolutely, Kim. So let's walk through this, this AGA tool. The first step would be developing a strong patient and provider relationship by providing education and reassurance regarding their diagnosis. And I think this is so key. One of the things that I think is so important for patients with IBS is just validating, validating their quality of life issues, validating their symptoms. One of the things that I'll say to my patient is, hey, while this might not affect your lifespan, this is certainly going to affect your quality of life. So be validated. Then you can center discussion around lifestyle modifications, exercise, sleep, and diet. And we certainly definitely want to describe and discuss the subtype, IBSC, IBSD. Thanks, Christina. So we start by determining if the patient has mild or moderate symptoms. With the use of the AGA algorithm, this can provide guidance for treatment options. For mild symptoms with diarrhea, we may consider loperamide. And we are specifically going to evaluate, you know, if there's mild pain, could we consider an antispasmodic or even consider peppermint oil? Uh, which I know Christina will dive into in a little bit. In the case that we've specifically been discussing earlier, she reports that she didn't have an adequate response to a recommended first-line therapy. So would most likely move on to a second-line therapy, including that of antibiotics, so rifaximin, maybe even a low-dose TCA, which Christina will speak about further, or even eloxadiline. If your patient doesn't respond to second-line therapy, then we consider moving on to third-line therapy, which could be elesitron. The most important concept to remember in this whole process when selecting a therapy is really to include shared decision-making regarding your treatment options with your patient. All right, so we've talked a lot about IBSD. Christina, let's review some of the clinical guidelines now specifically to IBSC. Absolutely. Thank you, Kim. And before I get into more of a specific case uh, of IBSC, I just want to tee it up by talking a little bit more about the subtype of constipation-predominant IBS. So we know that IBS with predominant constipation is a subtype of IBS, and it actually accounts for over 30% of IBS cases, affecting approximately 4.5 million people in the United States alone. We recognize that IBS in general, and certainly constipation-predominant IBS, negatively impacts our patients' healthcare-related quality of life their work productivity, their activities of daily living, and obviously an additional imposing substantial burden on healthcare resources. And studies have shown that often patients 
don't seek care from their healthcare provider for many years or discuss their symptoms at their annual exam. It's just not something that's easy to talk about or intuitive. That's, this can delay a diagnosis and management for years. So I had a patient case, a 48-year-old woman who presented to the clinic complaining of occasional constipation, but occurring for years with increasing abdominal pain and straining to have a bowel movement occurring most days for the past three plus years. So it was worsening over time, but certainly longstanding. Now remember, IBS tends to affect women more frequently, as well as those younger individuals, although we do see our fair share of men as well. So my patient has two to three bowel movements a week, described as either rabbit pellets or huge hard stools that she has to strain with. Pain usually gets better after defecation, but she really never feels completely evacuated, and that's a common complaint. She has a pretty mild medical history, seasonal allergies, a degenerative disc disease. She has some acid reflux. She has no pertinent family history of GI diseases or malignancies, and she has no alarm signs or symptoms. And we reviewed those earlier on, unintentional weight loss, rectal bleeding, nocturnal diarrhea. We reviewed that earlier in Kim's uh, discussion. And she actually, given her age, had a prior colonoscopy at the age of 45 per new guidelines, uh, notable for diverticulosis only. So on physical exam, she had a normal rectal tone, normal, no tenderness, no perianal lesions, appropriate pelvic floor descent, and no paradoxical contractions upon bearing down. And I'm specifically describing the rectal exam, which especially in the, in the setting of con chronic constipation, notably in patients there may be more obstructive symptoms, I do think it's important to perform a rectal exam on all of my patients. Um, she's on some pretty basic medications, omeprazole, PPI therapy for her GERD, baby aspirin, and multivitamin a day. And she occasionally takes ibuprofen. So based on her presentation, the longstanding nature of symptoms that so far seem pretty consistent with Rome criteria, again, that recurrent abdominal pain, uh, averaging at least one day per week in the last three months, and associated with at least two of the following. So remember that it has to be pain related to defecation, pain with a change in frequency of stool or change in form or appearance. And in the absence of alarm symptoms, I'm already formulating a likely diagnosis of IBSC as that front runner. But clearly we want to be considering differential diagnosis in this setting. So let's talk about what some of those would be in the setting of IBSC. So certainly we can have patients that simply come in with slow transit. They're just colonic inertia. They're just slow movers. They don't really have that abdominal component to it versus outlet obstruction constipation. So that patient that feels like there's something obstructing and they can't get their stool out around that. There's chronic idiopathic constipation. And we're going to really talk a little bit more about that in greater detail later on. Medication-induced constipation. This is really why it's important to be looking at our patient's medications, notably narcotics, um, iron supplements can constipate, anticholinergics, just to name a few. So when we're talking and getting that history from that patient, what are their longstanding medications? Were there newer medications that were started around the onset of their symptoms? Certainly pelvic floor dysfunction, dyssynergic defecation, or anatomical causes such as strictures, prolapse, rectocele, again, the importance of that rectal exam. Can a patient have both IBSC and anatomical abnormalities or pelvic floor dysfunction? Of course. And that's why it's typically recommended to perform that rectal exam at the initial consultation for a patient who's presenting with that chronic constipation. Notably, again, if they describe somewhat more of obstructive symptoms. There can also be secondary causes of constipation. Examples of this could be neurogenic causes such as Parkinson's or MS or endocrine as in diabetes or thyroid conditions. Certainly malignancy 
and pregnancy. How many patients we we have that come in, uh, pregnant mamas who are just dealing with with really bad constipation, hormone driven. So obviously those are secondary causes, definitely on the list of differentials. So while these are some of the differential diagnoses we look at when evaluating or think about when evaluating a patient in the clinic with chronic constipation, you're starting to have that thought that this is going to be constipation predominant IBS. But I think one of the most common ideologies that one should understand the differentiating factors in from IBS is that of chronic idiopathic constipation. So let's have a brief review of these two entities a bit more. So again, Kim has already reviewed the Rome 4 criteria earlier, but as a reminder, and I've just mentioned this, it's got to be that abdominal pain, abdominal pain, abdominal pain, abdominal pain that occurs at least one day per week in the last three months and is associated with the at least two of those criteria related to defecation, change in frequency of stool, or change in form or appearance. And that criteria for that Rome criteria should be fulfilled for the last three months with symptom onset at least six months before diagnosis. So obviously my patient, she's been dealing with this for years, just some increasing pain issues, but again, the past three plus years. Now, chronic idiopathic constipation has some different criteria. It must include at least two of the following in at least 25% of defecations. Straining, lumpy or hard stools, a sensation of incomplete evacuation, a sensation of anal rectal obstruction or blockage, an individual who needs to use manual maneuvers to facilitate at least 25% of their defecation, and at least uh, spontaneous bowel movements occurring uh, less than three times per week. And this criteria needs to be fulfilled for the last three months with symptom onset at least six months before diagnosis. In the setting chronic idiopathic constipation, loose stools are rarely present without the use of laxative. So again, insufficient criteria for IBS, mainly because of that abdominal pain or, or the lack thereof of that symptom. So again, after we've ensured there's no alarm symptoms and no need to exclude other organic GI diseases, we approach our patient with a goal of making that positive diagnosis with symptom-based presentation consistent with Rome criteria and really minimal diagnostic testing. So I know Kim spent some time reviewing the limited diagnostic testing that society guidelines suggest testing for ruling out an IBS with constipation. And what they actually recommend against pursuing, I will take a moment quickly to review the constipation predominant IBS recommendation. So again, all patients, let's get some basic lab work, a CBC, a CMP, thyroid testing. And as mentioned earlier, if the patient has not undergone age-appropriate routine colonoscopy, in my case, my patient is up to date on her colonoscopy. And there's really limited labs for constipation-predominant IBS. As Kim mentioned earlier, you can consider testing for celiac disease, notably if that patient has you know, significant bloating. Uh, but ACG guidelines really specify this specifically for patients with diarrhea-predominant irritable bowel. And then if we have patients where they are severe or refractory, these patients may need further testing, physiological testing, anorectal manometry testing, um, and IBS uh, patients that we suspect may have pelvic floor dysfunction, um, again, or those refractory constipation patients, um, and that is per AG and ACG guidelines. Okay, so now we're going to move on and talk a little bit about treatment. We're very confident in our positive diagnosis of IBSC. We want to move on now to providing some management options. So back to our patient case. In discussing therapies she's tried before, we want to see, okay, what has our patient been on? What has she tried? And we know that these patients come in often having, having tried multiple over-the-counter therapies. Um, so she reported having tried fiber, which actually in her case caused bloating and abdominal pain. 
She also did try peg laxative Miralax, which helped to loosen her stool. So it helped with constipation, but did not improve her abdominal pain overall. So this is actually a pretty common scenario where patients often come in, as I mentioned, already having had trials of over-the-counter therapies, including fiber with mixed benefit. But if I have a patient with IBSC that's not tried fiber, it's a reasonable option. ACG guidelines actually suggest that soluble, but not insoluble fiber uh, can be used to treat global IBS symptoms. So soluble fiber such as psyllium, you know, it's inexpensive and it's something that can be uh, widely available, certainly for our patients with fairly mild symptoms. It can improve stool consistency and frequency and overall symptom relief. AGA guidelines document fiber as being efficacious, so it's something to consider. But I talk to my patients about starting low and going slow in the amount of fiber with gradual titration, obviously to try to avoid and mitigate any bloating or side effect. So how about Miralax or PEG? Well, according to the ACG, while PEG can improve constipation, they feel there's no evidence that PEG improves overall symptoms of pain and bloating in IBS. So they actually recommend against the use of PEG to relieve, again, the global symptoms of IBS. The AGA, however, suggests the use of PEG's lax- PEG laxatives in the treatment of IBSC. So there are conflicting or, or differing opinions, if you will, around various management options per the guidelines. But again, and Kim would agree, ultimately as providers, we're treating the patient that is in real time and right in front of us and making decisions as we see fit. And the guidelines are there for us to do just that, to offer us guidance. So it's been documented in studies that many patients with IBS are not satisfied with their treatment journey. And there there has been data looked at out there. They've been on multiple agents over time. There was actually an American survey that looked at over 900 patients specifically with IBSD And they were surveyed regarding response of their symptoms to various interventions, including both pharmacological and non-pharmacological interventions. And for specifically response to medications, those that are approved for IBSD, only 26% of patients were satisfied with IBS, with diarrhea-approved therapies, and 39% only satisfaction for other medications, medications outside of IBS approval, Uh, So you see that these are really dismal satisfaction rates. And this actually mirrors real-world scenarios where we have patients who have been dealing with these chronic, long-standing symptoms with mixed benefit, been on multiple therapies and interventions over the year, and really significant negative impact on quality of life. I mean, these are the patients that are coming in, you know, every other month to see us if they seek care at all. And often, as I mentioned before, it takes years for a patient uh, to come in and see a healthcare provider for their complaints. And our patients definitely have valid quality of life altering complaints about how they have difficulty maintaining a work day due to the need for frequent bathroom breaks or fear of traveling or taking a, a road trip. We've talked about this. They frequently are in and out of the ER due to their pain for fear that what if something is missed? One of the things that I think is so important with patients, again, that I mentioned earlier is just validating their symptoms. A lot of times our patients will come in and, and they'll feel like they're making something up in their head. And, and again, like I said earlier, you know, this, while this may not be an organic underlying disease process per se, it definitely is a complex of symptoms that's going to affect their quality of life, you know, and it's something that we're going to be walking with them through, you know, the re- remainder of their life. All right. So now that we've talked about what my patient has tried in the past and had mixed benefit with, let's move on to talking about some of the prescription therapies that we have available for our patients with constipation predominant IBS. So let's start with the secretagogues. We're going to talk about lubiprostone. This is an intestinal chloride channel activator. 
It acts locally at the apical membrane of the GI tract to increase fluid secretion and improve fecal transit. Both the ACG and AGA recommend its use, with the ACG, ACG providing a strong recommendation and AGA providing conditional recommendation. Another secretagogue is linactylide. It's a GCC agonist. It also works on the luminal surface of, of intestinal epithelium, increasing intestinal fluid and GI transit. And both the ACG and AGA recommend its use. The ACG provides uh, linactylide with a strong recommendation and high quality. AGA recommends use, again, strong recommendation, high quality of evidence. Placanotide is another secretagogue that works on intestinal fluid increasing and GI transit time is accelerated with this. The ACG and AGA both recommend its use. ACG gives it a strong recommendation with high quality of evidence. And AGA suggests use conditional with moderate quality. And then we have tenapinor. Tenapinor is actually the new kid on the block. It is a sodium hydrogen exchanger 3 inhibitor, and it has a little bit of a different mechanism of action. It reduces sodium absorption, so it results in an increase in intestinal lumen water secretion, accelerating intestinal transit time, and softening stool consistency. It act also actually decreases intestinal permeability, and this has a positive bene benefit on visceral hypersensitivity. It is recommended by the AGA guidelines, but it's not mentioned in ACG guides, guidelines as tenapinor had not yet been approved during the development of ACG guidelines, but the AGA suggests conditional moderate quality. Now, how about those osmotic laxatives, polyethylene glycol, what we know as Miralax. The ACG recommends against the use of PEG products, as I mentioned earlier, because they focus on global symptoms. So they recommend it against its use to relieve global symptoms of IBS and IBSC, although obviously it can be helpful for constipation. And this is a conditional recommendation with low quality. The AGA suggests using PEGS laxatives for our patients with IBSC. It's a conditional recommendation with low quality. Now we already mentioned fiber as well. So the ACG for general irritable bowel syndrome suggests that soluble but not insoluble fiber be used to treat global IBS symptoms. And again, we talked about that. The AGA recommends it as efficacious or states it as efficacious. And that's about all they go into in detail when it comes to fiber. Now, I'm sure you know there are multiple other therapies that we can utilize to treat irritable bowel syndrome. Sometimes they don't fall directly in a category specific to IBSD or IBSC. So let's review a few of these along with the ACG and AGA clinical guidelines. And let's start with the antispasmodic, what we know as dicyclamine or hyacymine. I think that this is one of the most common therapies that we see utilized by primary care providers when treating patients with IBS. Antispasmodics are cholinergic or calcium channel blockers that result in relaxing smooth muscle in the GI tract. Now I'd like to point out a unique difference here. The ACG recommends against the use of antispasmodics, whereas the AGA suggests the use with conditional recommendation and low quality. And I think this is because the AGA did include the use of peppermint oil under this umbrella of antispasmodic, probably boosting that, that recommendation a little bit more. So how about the uh, antidepressants, specifically the tricyclic antidepressant, as we know, amitriptyline or nortriptyline. Neuromodulators do help with visceral analgesia and smooth muscle relaxation. The most regular studied antidepressant class in IBS is the TCA, and it's preferred for patients with persistent 
moderate to severe abdominal pain, and loose stools. You can get side effects with these TCAs, including constipation, tachycardia, or neurotension. So these are things that we need to have a good conversation with our patient about. And clearly, some of our patients may already be on antidepressants. So this is something that we have to have a discussion with, uh, possibly their psychiatrist or their primary care. So the ACG recommends TCA, a strong recommendation with moderate quality. AG also suggests use of a TCA, and this is a conditional recommendation with low quality evidence. Now, how about the SSRIs? Potentially more favorable side, favorable side effect profile than TCA. They increase small bowel and colonic transit, so this might be one you'd be more likely to use in the setting of a constipation predominant IVS. So ACG really provides no recommendations on the use of SSRI in their guideline. The AGA suggests against the use, and this is a, a conditional uh, recommendation with low quality. And at this point, SNRIs have not yet been studied in large randomized controlled trials. Christina, we've talked a lot about the use of prescription-based therapy for our IBS patients. But there are some recommendations regarding non-pharmacological treatment options for our IBS patients as well. So let's start with some peppermint oil. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think peppermint oil definitely um, is a useful tool. And a lot of my patients are using peppermint oil, essential oils for often, you know, different conditions or entities. So they're, they're fairly open to talking about it. It is an antispasmodic, anti-inflammatory. It has antibacterial properties as well. It has been historically approved as first-line therapy for IBS in Europe. And the ACG suggests the use for global symptoms. This is a conditional recommendation, low quality of evidence. The AGA really doesn't have it as a recommendation. They actually put their peppermint oil in their category of antispasmodic. So it just doesn't have its own category, unlike the ACG, where they put it under their own umbrella category. So Kim, what about probiotics? You know, out here in Colorado, you know, we're all brewing our own kombucha. It's kind of all over the place. Patients love to talk about probiotics and prebiotics. What are your thoughts or what do the guidelines say about probiotics? Well, I'd agree with you, Christina. You know, a majority of our patients do take probiotics. And, and I have to say, sometimes do I recommend them? Yeah. But if we're looking at guidelines today, and that's what we're really talking about. So the ACG guidelines actually recommends against use of probiotics. And the AGA actually makes no recommendation of use of probiotics unless it's in a clinical trial. But what I want to point out, right, and I think we can both definitely attest to this in clinical practice. You and I, again, we've been doing this for uh, you know, well over 10 years at this point, Christina, yep. right? we, we definitely, you know, see clinical benefit in probiotic, but when we're looking at guidelines and when guidelines get created, the essence, and we talked about this from the beginning is looking at clinical evidence. And we know that there are multiple probiotics on the market, right? Each with multiple and varied strain. And unfortunately, what we don't have are great quality studies to suggest one specific type of probiotic that provides clinical benefit specifically in our IBS population. And I think this is, of course, why we don't see this recommendation of probiotics in these guidelines. So diet modification is, is recommended as one of these first steps when we talk about our patients with IBS, right? When we look at that AGA clinical decision tool. So Christina, do we have any society guidelines regarding diet modifications for IBS? Yeah, I think we hear a lot about diet. Again, I think it's one of the things that our patients do like to bring up and talk about. And, you know, I think it's something that we can 
uh, give control. Our patients do like to have control and, and kind of be captains over their own ship. And, and diet is something that that they can work on and, and are amenable to working on. I think probably one of the, uh, there's different recommendations or different suggestions in the literature. I think one of the ones that has the most data in the literature is FODMAP diet, which you're all familiar with. Um, and the societies both uh, have, have you know, some recommendations with that. And ACG uh, does recommend, you know, a limited trial of low-fat FODMAP diet. AGA, they, they, they do reference that's probably the most currently most evidence-based. They don't have a specific recommendation per se. Uh, but if a patient's going to remain on a low FODMAP diet, I definitely do want that patient to be seeing a dietitian uh, to kind of help them uh, navigate that and map that out further, no pun intended. There are also some great patient resources available. These include low FODMAP diet apps that they can put on their phone. Certainly diet is, is a big a key and a place to start. I think there's some other, you know, basic suggestions that we should be talking to our patients. Uh, one of the things is, is minimizing, possibly even eliminating alcohol. The best evidence for this is in diarrhea predominant IBS. It's likely due to decrease in metabolic byproducts. And I think it's really important to have a discussion around, you know, regular activity, exercise, sleep, yoga, meditation. These are all other uh, options and variables, non-pharmacologic pharmacologic interventions that we can be having discussions around. Thanks, Christina. And I agree. I have a lot of patients who really want to have a discussion about non-pharmacological options. And I think it's a great thing that we start off with these lifestyle modifications with our patients. So I know earlier in this discussion, we had talked about IBS as being redefined as a disorder of gut-brain interaction. Christina, can you provide a bit more information about cognitive behavioral therapy and gut-directed psychotherapies? And again, do we have any society recommendations on these? Yeah, so these are other options that we can think about with our patients, especially those that, um, you know, bring that up and, and are seeking things outside of, of prescription therapy or medication therapy. Gut-directed cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, there's strong support from clinical evidence and trials and professional guidelines on this. It really focuses on negative and disruptive thoughts feelings and behaviors, and it really can be considered as adjunct treatment in our patients with IBS. Gut-directed hypnotherapy, um, considered maybe for that treatment where they're, they're just treatment refractory. Um, and so that's an option as well. It's effective for IBS. Um, and benefits can la last, uh, according to studies and data, um, anywhere from a year up to five years. So the ACG guidelines suggest the use of gut-directed psychotherapies. This is a conditional recommendation, low quality of evidence. And the AGA did not provide any specific recommendations around this. I would also like to point out that there are resources for gut-directed cognitive behavioral therapy and hypnotherapy, which are widely available. There are apps and online services that we can direct our patients to. And last but not least, what about fecal microbial transplant, or FMT? FMT continues to be a hot topic, right? The ACG recommends actually, though, against FMT for the treatment of IBS at this time. You know, our patients want to come in and chat about it. They do their own research. We have educated individuals out there. Uh, but please don't encourage your patients at this point to seek that back alley FMT because it really isn't, uh, you know, uh, ready for prime time. I think that's the best way to describe it. Not ready for prime time as of yet. So, all right, we've used, reviewed a lot of treatment options here and also reviewed the updated clinical guidelines from ACG and AGA regarding our IBS treatment modalities. So, Christina, let's turn back to our case study and kind of walk through that AGA clinical decision support tool to kind of finish things up on your case. 
Yep. So again, my case being that of a constipation predominant uh, irritable bowel patient. AGA recommends for all IBS patients though, uh, diet and lifestyle modifications. So we're going to start there. And I think that's a really reasonable place to start. And then moving into first line therapy for our patients with constipation predominant IBS, uh, the AGA recommendation in this clinical decision support tool is looking at PEG for constipation as well as antispasmodics for pain. And then second line, if our patients are having inadequate response, side effects, just not happy where they're at, then we're moving on to the secretagogues and tenapenor. And if ongoing pain, trials of antidepressants like our TCAs we talked about, and that cognitive behavioral uh, therapy. So Kim, we're hearing a lot more these days about shared decision-making between patients and providers. I recall you mentioned that earlier. What are your thoughts on the importance of this? Christina, thank you so much for bringing this up. So really, the foundation of IBS management is the development of a strong patient-provider relationship. So before we conclude our podcast today, let's review a few interviewing tips. So we need to first, of course, build the relationship, right? As Christina mentioned, sometimes it's it, patients don't seek out care right away, and it's very difficult for patients to talk about bowel activities, abdominal discomfort, bloating, or even accidents that may that they may have had because of their symptoms. They may not even want to talk about the stressors that actually trigger their symptoms. So to build the relationship, start by greeting your patient warmly, use eye contact, smile, and of course, prioritize your patient's needs. I also make sure I always sit at the same level of my patient. So if they're sitting on a chair, I sit in the same spot as them. So I am never above them. And I think this helps also develop this relationship. The next thing, practice, practice active listening. Use open-ended questions. Clarify what they're saying. And paraphrase. I always say, so would it be fair for me to say and then re-paraphrase exactly what the patients have said, and then let them confirm or deny, of course, that I have been actively listening. Also, be empathetic. Identify and validate their feelings. Christina brought this up earlier, right? We need to encourage emotional expression. Yeah, sometimes there are tears involved, but this is what helps build that relationship and make sure that you demonstrate empathy. So when discussion regarding treatment arises, we have to utilize shared decision-making. And a part of this is a focus on patient education. So ensure that you understand your patient's perspective of their condition, right? It's irritable bowel syndrome. Understand what they know about it. Review expectations, right? They've had these conditions for a long time. We need to set expectations of how our treatments are going to go, right? And also what our, our visits are going to look like in the future. And of course, develop that mutual treatment plan. Kim, I think these are great recommendations, you know, really for developing a foundation and in building a relationship with our patients with IBS. And, you know, these are patients we're going to be following for years. This is a longstanding condition. Uh, and so really, I think it's one of the most key and most important processes for establishing this, this long-term relationship. I would like to add that a positive patient-provider relationship empowers patients to self-manage. It enhances the treatment compliance increases patient satisfaction, improves health outcomes, and decreases overall healthcare visits. In order to establish and maintain a positive patient-provider relationship, I think as healthcare providers, we should adopt a patient-centered model of communication that really builds trust with our patients, you know, just as Kim mentioned. All right. Both Christina and I thank you for your time today. 
we hope that we have provided you with data to make a confident diagnosis of IBS utilizing a positive diagnostic strategy. We also hope that the review of the ACG and AGA IBS clinical guidelines will provide you with pertinent information that you can translate into clinical practice to provide the best outcomes for your IBS patients. Thank you, Kim and Christina, for joining us on MP Pulse. And thank you to all who are listening. If you would like to get more involved with AAMP and partner with other members on issues related to IBS or other gastroenterology topics, please consider joining the AAMP Gastroenterology Specialty Practice Group community. Also, be sure to visit the AAMP Collaborative Learning Network, or CLN, for discussions with experts and other peers on various topics. The CLN is an open forum to engage with peers and content experts. And to join the CLN, go to aanp.org CLN. Thank you for listening to MP Pulse. Please subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back regularly for new episodes. And as always, be kind, be safe, be effective, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner. Thank <laughs> you.